you're listening to the Primary Medicine Podcast with Kevin and Dimitri, bringing you the best in primary care CME that you can use in your everyday practice. Welcome back, everyone, to the Primary Medicine Podcast. We're very lucky today to have Vu come back again to talk about a topic that I wish I had in medical school, because it's really about the way that you, it goes to the basis of diagnosing disease and being aware of how your bias, your feelings as a physician can in some ways be your worst enemy and can in some ways cause medical error. And this happens to all of us. And and I think the greatest thing you can say is if you don't know what happens, you can't fix it. So today we'll talk about how to know what happens, how to fix it, and we, Vu is, uh, again, I was joking with him two seconds ago. He has many hats, as, as you know. And one of his hats, one of the things he does on top of everything else is that he's an auditor for the CPSO, which for people who don't practice in Ontario is the College of Physicians of Ontario. They, he audits practices, talks to physicians, and helps them realize some of these errors. So he has a lot of experience doing this. So with great excitement, I'll let Vu begin the topic. Well, Thank you, Dimitri, for having me back. You know, I always enjoy uh, being on your show and uh, I, I enjoy speaking to people and uh, helping people learn. So thank you very much for having me back. Of course, I'm really happy to have you back. So we're talking about this. The, the topic is cognitive bias. The science looking at cognitive bias or looking at cognition is called metacognition. So metacognition is defined as thinking about thinking knowing about knowing why did I do what I do and why did I make the decisions that I made trying to understand that. And why is it an important topic? You know, if you think about uh, something as simple as an aspirin, right? So relative risk reduction, if I gave someone who has a uh, diabetes, hypertension, male, blah, 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 and I'm going to give you an aspirin to do primary prevention, let's say, right? And the aspirin reduces the risk of a heart attack or reduces the risk of a stroke relative reduction of, uh, I don't know, 25%, 20%, whatever that number is. And remember, it's a relative reduction. And we think that aspirin is worth taking. But yet, in medicine, we have never been taught how we think or the mistakes that we make and why we make them. And if you think about that, if I, if I knew what anchoring bias is, if I knew what attribution bias is and I apply that to my patient, you understand that if I don't make that mistake, I have 100% survival for that patient, right? <laughs> you, you understand that if I understand and I don't make anchoring bias and I don't apply anchoring bias to my patient at the time of decision, I've saved a patient. I didn't reduce his risk of mortality. I've actually saved him. And so it's funny that we talk about aspirin and we talk about, you know, Plavix and, and we talk about Zarelto and all these things that re, re, reduces relative reduction of X percentage. But in med school, we've never talked about why we make mistakes. And I think this is a topic that is extremely important. I agree. And uh, I just I just had a lecture to I was giving a lecture two days ago to my students at McGill about false negatives and false positives. And it, 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 they were a little bit confused. I think it's it's a process that requires experience to realize what it means. But I think it's really important to know that it exists and that no diagnosis is perfect. Yeah, no, no diagnosis is perfect is exactly it. Because we know that for every test, there's a false positive, a false negative, a sensitivity and specificity. We know that. 
It's something we learned throughout med school and in science. But did you know, or are your audience, does your audience know that there's also a sensitivity to your history and a specificity to your history? Does there's a sensitivity to your physical exam and a specificity of your physical exam? In the case of sensitivity, your sensitivity of your story and your history changes based on your patient's cognition, based on your mood today. Like if I came to the office and I'm anxious because my wife is going to be delivering, how concentrated will I be? And how much of a good story will I get? And if I don't get a good story, how sensitive is my story, right? Or uh, my patient has a language barrier. My, my patient speaks Portuguese and I have a translator who barely speaks English and I speak Chinese. The, there are so many things that are lost in translation. And therefore, it reduces the sensitivity of my history as well. Same thing for physical exam. My patient has... It comes in with a coma or they come in with a decreased level of awareness. And I'm trying to palpate for tenderness. How, how sensitive and how specific is my physical exam? And again, we forget all that. We just think that sensitivity and specificity only exists for tests. No, it doesn't. It exists for our clinical skills. So therefore, medicine is not, or I should say diagnosis, is not a statistical calculation. It's not one plus one equals two. It's one plus one could essentially become five based on the sensitivity and specificity of my history and physical. But even if I say, hey, I'm palpating the right lower quadrant, uh, the story does fit appendicitis, I can't say to my patient, hey, Bob, you have appendicitis. I have to say, I think you have appendicitis. Uh, here are some tests that I need to do that bring me closer to that sensitivity. And then if it becomes closer, then I think you're more likely to have appendicitis and not a kidney stone, right? So medicine is actually a probabilistic science. It is not a exact science. That's why we say medicine is an art because medicine is not an exact science. Everything brings us closer to a probability, but it's never hundred percent. And the reason is because our patient is human and we are human. Our patients will say things that we may misinterpret and I may misinterpret things that he said, and I may misinterpret my own judgment (laughs) and will come into what these cognitions are. So I think the first message that I think is important is medicine is probabilistic. It is not an exact science. So therefore, we have to treat it as such and all the things that come with it. Exactly. The, the being, being aware of uncertainty and being ultimately comfortable with it, because I wish you could talk to patients that way. I wish you could say, I think this is what it is, but some, sometimes it does not work. You have to be a bit more frank with them, but really in your mind, that's what you should be thinking. I think this is what it is. By doing this test, it might be closer to that. And I love the idea that you just started with that our own exam, our own history has sensitivity and specificity because that goes beyond the usual, just this test has specific has been sensitive and specificity. This goes into the way we think. And true, if you had a bad day the night before, if you slept badly the night before, I'm sure your specificity has gone down significantly, even if you do the same tests, the same history and physicals. That's really important to know. Exactly. Let's talk about um, a few, let's say, cognitive errors that we make. Now, I want to make sure that your audience understand this. We as physicians are extremely well-trained. 
Canadian physicians, North American physicians, and I say all physicians across the world, some have different standards, but I think physicians in general are very well trained, right? We are at the top of our class. We are, that's how we got into medicine in the first place, because we were at the top of our class. So we're very bright, intelligent people. The question is, why do we make dumb decisions? Right? You think about that. When I when you make a mistake, it's only after that someone tells you, hey, Vu, remember that patient? Now, those are the worst sentence for an eMERGE doc, right? <laughs> Vu, remember that patient you saw yesterday? Oh my God, what did I do? How did I screw up this time? So that's the worst sentence anybody can ever say to me. So when when someone says, Hey, Vu, remember that patient? You did this and this, and he ended up dying with an aortic dissection. Oh my God, like, oh, what did I do? Why did I make that such decision? And yet I'm, I don't think I'm stupid. I, I'd gone through family medicine. I'd gone through emergency medicine. I've got 20 something odd years under my belt. I should be making good decisions. How did I miss it? How did I miss it? Why did I, why did that happen? Well, that happens is because what's in between your two ears, right? It's your brain. Your brain plays tricks on you. And if you're not aware that your brain plays tricks on you, then you will never recognize that you are fireable, right? And we are all fireable. And you and I understand the, the sentence, being human is making mistakes or making mistakes is being human. Whether you're a doctor, you're an engineer, a lawyer, it doesn't matter. You're human and you will miss mistakes. That's why we have insurance, by the way, <laughs> right? So that when we make mistakes, someone covers us. So so when we make these mistakes, how did I make them, right? Why did I make them? That's the thinking about thinking. That's the metacognition part. And so in, in thinking about the different reasons why I made the mistakes, there are different biases that we can go through. And I'll, we'll speak about those um, in just a minute. I really like the quote you had in the presentation that you shared with me. Make sure your worst enemy doesn't lie, live between your own two ears. That's so powerful. And uh, I, I think so important to understand when you're di di diagnosing people. Absolutely. And so I think you said it at the beginning, being self-aware. Now, being self-aware is, is what? Is being understanding my own limitations. So, you know, I'm Vu. Uh, these are the things I don't like. I don't like eating pasta. Well, why? Okay. I don't like seeing patients with chronic back pain in my emergency department on a Sunday, 9 p.m. Why don't I like that? Right? Why do I not like to see crying babies coming in for immunization? Let's just say that's an example, right? Mm -hmm. I don't like crying babies coming in for immunization to my practice. Why don't I like that? Okay. So now that I understand why I don't like it, the reality is I'm a family doctor or I'm an eMERGE doc. That's what I do. Live with it. Accept it. Okay, so now that I've lived with it and I accept it, the next crying baby that comes into my office, I know it brings up emotion. Oh my God, I don't want to see this crying baby. I really don't. Can I pass it on to Dimitri? Oh no, Dimitri's already done his shift. No, okay, then I have to see this crying baby then. Okay, so I'm already worked up emotionally, right? Emotionally, I'm worked up. I don't want to see this crying baby. I, 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 I don't want to see this case, but I must because that's my job and I have to do it. It's, it's recognizing that at that moment, your emotions will play on your brain. At that moment, all the negative biases will come through if you don't pay attention. 
you're so upset, you're so anxious, you're so worried, you're so disengaged that you're not listening to the mom. You just want to get this done over with. Just jab, jab that thigh and let the baby go home, right? Or you're 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 not examining the baby appropriately. You just want to get it done quickly. And so, what are those things that I, as an individual, like, don't like? What are the things that I have prejudice with? And it's knowing self. For example, I gave you that example of, you know, the guy coming to my emergency department on a Sunday evening at nine o'clock. He's had this back pain for the last 30 years, but tonight he wants to know why, right? That just that just boils my blood pressure, right? Why didn't you go see your family doctor? Why are you here on a Sunday at 9 p.m. for the exact same back pain for the last 30 years? So you're all worked up. You're all angry. You're all like, like, why? This is the family medicine stuff. Why is he in my emergency department? So you get angry. And so your emotions are taking the better part of you and, and your brain shuts down. And so what do you tend to do? You're, you're a bit more abrupt. You're a little bit more rude. You, you want to go fast. You want to just say, go see your family doctor. Here's some naproxen. But that comes to the point that if you didn't do a good history, and you didn't do a good physical exam, fair enough, this guy may have a back pain for the last 30 years, but today he ruptured his AAA. That's why he came today. Now, did the patient know that he he ruptured his AAA? Of course not. All he knows is I got back pain. It's up to me as the doctor to rule out that AAA, not him. To him, I've got back pain. By the way, you asked me if I have back pain. Yeah, I've had it for 30 years, but nothing like today. It's different. Today it's, today it's tearing. Every other day, it's an ache going down my leg, right? Today, it's tearing <laughs> and it goes up my chest, right? And if we're not paying attention to those details because we're angry, we're anxious, we just want to get it over with, you know, get out of my emerge type of thing. Well, where does that come from? That comes from my bias, my own prejudice of me not liking people coming to the emergency department on a Sunday at 9 p.m. for chronic back pain, right? And if I don't recognize that, then I will fall into that trap every single time. What happens if I recognize it? Well, if I recognize it, I'm going to say, stop, Vu. These are the cases you don't like. And Vu, when you don't like these cases, you do it wrong every single time. (laughs) Okay? And if you're doing it wrong every single time, is that the best way to treat your patient and to treat yourself? To the patient, definitely not. How about myself? Well, if I miss this and patient dies from a AAA, imagine the lawsuit. Imagine the sleepless night. Imagine like you're not going to win from this, boo, right? So you better pay attention. So when I see patients that I have prejudice against, and we all do, we're human. If you're sitting in front of me and you say you don't have any prejudice, you're either God or you're saint, or you don't practice medicine, you don't live on earth because we all have prejudice. And until we recognize that we have those prejudices, we're always going to fall at the same spot. So once we recognize that we have that prejudice, this is where we turn on system two. So I don't know if you've heard of the book, Thinking Fast and Slow. So Thinking Fast and Slow is about system one, system two. System one is intuitive. It's fast. It's it's thin slicing. It's just getting a very superficial understanding and making a decision. That's system one. As I'm talking to you right now, I'm breathing. Well, I don't need to think. It's automatic. It's intuitive. My brain is using system one to help me breathe as I'm talking to you. What is system two? Well, system two is slow, 
it's analytical, it's factual, it's dissecting, right? Can I live on system two all day long? No, because if every time I need to take a breath in and then take a deep breath out, I have to think about it and analyze it. Well, I, I only take two breaths in a day, right? So we can't use system two, right? All the time. But when do we use system two? We use system two when it's crucial. When is it crucial? When I'm making a decision, when I'm making a diagnosis, I'm writing a prescription, I'm ordering a test, when I'm sitting in front of a patient and I'm talking to a patient to gather information with active listening, that's when I engage system two. When should I engage system two as well? When I'm stressed, when I'm, when I'm anxious, I just had a fight with my wife and now I have to go work in that urgent care, see 50 people in the next six hours. Well, I'm already emotionally worked up. I have to recognize that, wait a minute, Vu, you're emotionally worked up. You, you need to slow down. You need to think. You need to dissect. You need to engage system two more often today than you usually do, right? Because otherwise, you're using system one and you're going to make a whole bunch of errors. So understanding where your likes, dislikes, understanding what your prejudice are so that when that happens, you engage system two. Exactly. I think some people call it the reptilian brain, but the thing about accessing system two is it's harder to do when you're emotionally upset. It's harder to get to that point. And I love the fact that you mentioned, know your triggers, know which type of patient trigger you, because we all have them. I have them. And actually forced myself to spend more time with these patients because I know I'm more likely to make a mistake on them. And, and two weeks ago, I had a patient with chronic pain. And, you know, I said, it, it just, I hate that type of stuff. I know I'm going to see it, but I spent more time with her and end up uh, discovering that she was losing weight. She's 80. She had a scope. She had a mass. So you need to spend time with these patients. Uh, it's a really good point. Yeah. And forget about making mistakes, right? Let's say, let's say I'm, I'm super doctor and I never make mistakes, right? Let's, that never happens, but let's assume that's the premise, right? But even if that's the premise, forget about the diagnostic mistake. It's all about in the communication as well. If I have people who trigger me, like for example, in your, in your example of that patient with the chronic pain, let's say you did diagnose the colon cancer, right? 100%, you got it. But if you're not paying attention to your prejudice and your prejudices and your dislikes and your triggers, you may be a bit more curt with that patient. You may be a bit more rude with that patient. You may be a little bit more rushed with that patient. You may do things that the patient may misinterpret. And then you end up with a college complaint, <laughs> right? And then, oh, fair enough, you diagnosed the colon cancer, good for you, but now you have to respond to the college. <laughs> and now you have to call the CMPA and it's now six months of hell just because you were a bit too rude to the patient. So, you know, there's so many aspects to this, to knowing what your triggers are. And in those moments of weakness, right? Because those are moments of weakness. We all have them, right? When I see durian and it's on a fruit plate, oh my God, my, my knees become weak and I go for the durian, right? Some people go for the chocolate. Some people, people go for the strawberries, but we all have our moments of weakness. And so when I'm in a moment of weakness, that is the time that it's important to engage system two and be more careful. And, and how would I know that? Well, first of all, I need to know what, what triggers me. I need to know what are my prejudices, what are my strengths, what are my weaknesses and being self-aware back to your point, being self-aware is the number one thing you can do to reduce 
medical errors. Number one. So know your triggers. Know your triggers. Really important. We all have them. And it's fine. That's okay. We're all human. Exactly. Right? We're all human. That's that's the point. Now let's talk about common biases, common biases that that plague physicians. Now, whether you're a family doctor, whether you're an eMERGE doc, a cardiologist, an ophthalmologist, doesn't matter. These biases are common to physicians. Okay. They're obviously more common, certain biases in certain uh, specialties. So in family medicine, in urgent care medicine, in emergency medicine, in long-term care medicine, we are frontline medicine. We're not second line. Uh, an ICU doc, a cardiologist, you know, tests are done before they see them, right? So they, they suffer from different type of biases. We suffer from frontline medicine bias, and there's a whole bunch of them. So I'll give you one example. The first one is what I call anchoring bias, okay? So you'll hear this a lot. Anchoring bias is the fact that imagine in your head a ship in the middle of the lake and it puts an anchor, right? And the ship doesn't go anywhere. It stays put in the middle of this body of water. So anchoring is really your brain just sunk and doesn't move anymore. And your ideas don't move anymore. So where does anchoring bias comes from? Anchoring bias is the, the number one cognitive bias plaguing frontline medicine. Okay. If I, I've, I've done audits and peer assessments and registration assessments for the PCPSO, I do CMPA work. And that is the number one bias that happens to family doctors, eMERGE docs, urgent care, walk-in clinic. And this is how it presents itself. It's also called momentum bias because you lose momentum. The moment you have something, you lose momentum. So it's called anchoring bias, momentum bias, and this is how it presents and has this how it lurks itself. It's ugly little head. So, Dimitri, I'm a 35-year-old male who presents to your family practice. I made an urgent call to your secretary today. I must see Dimitri today. It's urgent. And so you see me, I come in and say, you know what, Dimitri, um, I got this pain on the left side of my chest. And you know what? Every time I press on it, I think it hurts. And then you ask me a whole bunch of questions. When, how, et cetera, fever, blah, blah. Did you fall? Yeah. You know what? I was, uh, I, 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 I took some heavy stuff maybe two days ago. Maybe I, maybe I, maybe I sprained myself. I don't know. Maybe. Right. And so it doesn't hurt when you press. Yeah. It, it hurts when I press. Right. What is your diagnosis? The anchor, the anchor comes down when he says he hurt himself, right? That's when exactly. Yeah. What is your diagnosis? It must be chest wall. Yes, pain, of course. Right? It must be chest wall pain. It must be MSK, right? So your brain, not you, because I know, Dimitri, you're a very meticulous doctor, but your brain just played trick on you. Your brain just say, aha, Eureka. He sprained himself. And now it's painful when he presses on his chest. It must be MSK. And boom, your brain just anchored. It doesn't matter that I told you I took a 13-hour flight from Saudi Arabia two weeks ago. 
<laughs> it doesn't matter that I told you, by the way, I'm a 35 year old female on birth control pill, right? <laughs> it doesn't matter that I told you, yes, it hurts when I press, but it also hurts when I take a deep breath. It did not matter. It did not register because your brain just anchored, boom, and it sank and it did not move at all. And your brain is unable to process new information because Eureka, you already have your answer. And so that's what anchoring bias means. I'll give you an example, a clear example of what I mean. That was one, the chest wall pain was one. Okay. I've got this 56 year old lady who comes in and I find a hemoglobin of 79, right? And you say, oh, that's anemic. And you look at the MCV, you look at the MCH, oh, it's micro, right? So you do an iron, you do a saturation, it's low iron. Oh, Mrs. Dimitri, you've got iron deficiency anemia. Here are some iron, here's some ferrous ferromate, right? And so, yeah. I've, I've, I found your diagnosis, Mrs. Dimitri. It's iron deficiency anemia. And boom, our brain just shuts. And we forget to ask, by the way, <laughs> Jeff Melina, <laughs> by the way, um, how's your appetite? Did you lose weight? By the way, do you have any family history of colon cancer? Right? right? And so we, the moment we found an answer or we think we found an answer, our brain just shuts down. And then you don't realize that, you know, the patient who has a hemoglobin of 76, yeah, fair enough. She has iron deficiency anemia because she's bleeding from a cancer, right? So those type of mistakes, and you must ask yourself, you know, any regular fourth-year medical student could have told you iron deficiency anemia in a 55-year-old look for colon cancer or look for some sort of cancer. So a fourth-year medical student can do that. Why is it that after 22 years, I can't do that? What, what, what's the difference between them and I? Well, the difference is I suffered from an anchoring bias. <laughs> That's it. That's it. That's the only thing. I'm just as intelligent. I, I know the exact same science. It's just that I got caught. I got caught by myself. I got trapped by my own brain. So that's where anchoring bias happens. And it happens a lot, a lot. That's the number one bias that we suffer from. It's it's interesting when you were giving me the first case about the about the pain, the chest fall, and you mentioned that it, it you said that you know when I push it hurts. I almost felt in my brain the tilt saying, aha, that's what it is. It, it's an interesting feeling because I felt it, even though I knew it was not that. And I, I felt the anchor come down. So that that's that's really interesting and it's really plausible. It's a very common mistake that we make, very common bias. Yeah. Another another story. Okay, here's another story. And this one every single of your listener will, will, will understand this and will think back, oh my God, did I miss this? Okay, mm -hmm. here's the story. It's this, we're, we're, we're doing this after Halloween because this story is scary, okay? So a young boy, five years old, comes into my practice. Okay? This is not a true story. I'm just faking a little bit, but, but the story is, is real. So this five-year-old kid comes into my family practice. The mom says he's been vomiting for the last 24 hours and he's having diarrhea. Okay. 
like he's got no fever, or maybe he's got a little runny nose, but you know, which five-year-old doesn't have a runny nose, right? So what do I, I check his belly, I check his lung, I check his heart, I check his ear and nose. You know what, mom, don't worry about it. It's gastro, right? The moment he said nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, my brain already said gastro, right? I've got 22 years of practice under my belt, right? I know what gastro is, right, Dimitri? Yes. I can recognize gastro, right? That's yes. that's what experience is. An experienced 22-year-old, 22 years of practice physician recognizes gastro. So what my brain does, my brain says, Vu, it's gastro. Fine. So I let the I let the child go home. Mom, don't worry about it. Give him some fluid, etc. Less than 12 hours later, the same boy comes back to my practice and sees Dimitri. <laughs> right? Because we work together. Sees Dimitri. Dimitri tells, asked her mom, what's going on? Well, he went home. I gave him some fluids, some, you know, some apple juice diluted in water. That's what the literature says, right? You don't need to give Pedialyte, just give him apple juice diluted with water. That's what they did. But, you know, my kid still continues vomiting and he still has diarrhea. You check him out again, right? Heart, lung, abdomen, skin. Mom, don't worry about it. It's, uh, it's gastro, right? Because Dimitri, you've seen gastro before. Mm-hmm. Right, you've seen gastroenteritis. He presents like gastroenteritis, right? So off she goes, right? Twelve hours later, she presents to the emergency department because the kid would not stop vomiting, and the kid still has diarrhea. The emerge doc walks in, checks the kid again, does the same history, the same abdo exam. Mom, don't worry about it. It's gastro. But the mom said, wait a minute. This is the third time I'm coming to see a doctor in the last two days and a half. Don't worry about it. It's gastro. We see this a lot in kids, especially it's in the winter. You know, we see this. Don't worry about it. Go home. 24 and something hours later, the mom presents to a different emergency department. This time, the merch docs decide, you know what? Let me check his scrotum. And lo and behold, there's a blue scrotum and a blue testicle. So what is the diagnosis? Torsion. Testicular torsion. Right. So this little kid had testicular torsion for over 36 hours. And, okay. you know, I, I paint this as a, as a kind of funny story, but it actually did happen. So what happened to the three previous doctors, two family doctors, one emerge doc? It's not like they didn't know what torsion is. They got, they got caught. They got caught by anchoring. What did they anchor on? Nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. Diarrhea, yeah. Right? They got anchored on that. Now, there's another There's another little pearl in this story. Any male, baby all the way to 100 years old, any male who comes in with nausea, vomiting, abdo pain, please check the testicles, right? And check the hernias, right? So this kid... Three doctors missed it because they anchored on gastro. Nobody bothered to look at the testicle. Nobody bothered to look for hernias. And so this is a good story of anchoring, right? And and you and me as family doctors, wow, my God, that's powerful because I see those things every single day. I see gastro every single day, right? Right? So we can definitely miss these. And I think... With anchoring bias, I think one thing to think about it as you're practicing is if you have a diagnosis, spend about two minutes trying to prove it wrong in your head. Try to ask the right questions and see if you're really sure about this. Like that, maybe that's one way to get around it. I don't know. What are your thoughts? 
How do you, how do you get her? Yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. That, that is one point I want, I want, was going to bring up anyways, but I'm glad you bring it up here because let, let me be honest with you, Dimitri, you have a big ego. Can I say that? We're friends, right? Sure. Yeah. You have a big ego. I have a big ego, right? Who are we? We're doctors. Hey, we, I was the top of my class when I was in high school, right? I, I got A's all the time, right? I made it to med school. It, it's like it's like I'm the LeBron James of medicine, right? And what does that do to me, right? How dare you tell me I'm wrong? I'm the doctor, right? And society places us very high, right? You walk into the bank and you say, I'm a doctor. Oh, please sign here. Here's a million dollars. What kind of mortgage do you want? Right. They don't even ask you for your, your date of birth. They just give you a million dollars. So so doctors are, are are put on a pedestal. And we are put, we put ourselves on a pedestal. And so because we put ourselves on a pedestal, how often do you question yourself? You don't. And I don't. And I suffer from the same bias as you do, <laughs> because I'm a doctor. I have the same ego. I was the top of my class too, right? <laughs> so when I'm when I'm there making that decision, who's there to contradict me? Nobody. And it's worse when you're in family practice because you, you're between four walls. And when you're examining that patient and you don't have a colleague coming in after you because you're now no longer a resident and nobody double checking your work, who's going to double check you? Nobody. Does your secretary come in to double check you? My secretary doesn't come in and double check my work. So who double checks my work? Nobody. So who has the biggest ego in my clinic? I do, right? And so because of that, we live in that environment. We forget. We forget that we live in that environment. And if we don't routinely question ourselves, play our own devil's advocate, you know what, this little kid, he's been having diarrhea, he's been vomiting, and I'm the third doctor examining this guy. Like something's wrong, right? How is it that after seeing two doctors, very bright doctors, by the way, and as I said, my assumption is that Canadian doctors and American doctors are very well trained, we're really, really good. How is it that after two doctors, this guy is still presenting? There must be something wrong, Okay. And I need to dig. I need to dig. I can't just say gastro like the others. I really need to dig until I prove myself wrong. And we don't do that. We don't do that. We don't play our own devil's advocate. And so to your point, in crucial situations, we must, right? When, when, when are those crucial situations? As I mentioned, when it's time for diagnosis, when it's time for treatment, uh, when I'm emotionally disturbed today because, you know, someone caught, someone cut in front of me as I was driving down St. Denis Street near Sherbrooke. How dare he cut in front of me, right? And now I'm all upset. That's By the way, I used to live in Montreal, so I know how Montreal is right. Oh, I know that as well. Right? Yeah. And it's, it's not better in Toronto, right? People oh. cut people all the time. So I got cut. And how dare you cut in front of me? And now I'm all upset and now I'm seeing this kid and while I'm still upset, right? So those are the times where... I, my weakness presents itself. Those are the times where the durian shows up, right? I go crazy. I see durian, I go crazy. And that's when I, I'm 
particularly vulnerable. And when I'm vulnerable, that's when I need to stop and say, Vu, engage system two. I, I actually say that in my brain. I actually stop and say that in my brain. Vu, system two. Okay, what is it that I'm missing? If I'm thinking gastro here, right? I'm thinking gastro. My brain's thinking gastro. What else could it be? What else could it be, Vu? Look for it. Look for it. What's the differential diagnosis of nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea in this five-year-old kid? Boy, not girl, boy. What am I missing? If you find nothing, fine. You end up with gastro, but you've been diligent. You've been meticulous. You, you, you showed the mom you did the work. You showed the mom that after all that, I couldn't find anything. It's just gastro. But be sure you make sure you do that. Make sure you you engage system two and say, what else am I missing? If I'm thinking gastro, why am I wrong? Why am I wrong here? I'm going to prove myself wrong. And that's what you're saying. Prove yourself wrong. And I, I think there's two things about what you said. One of them is as family doctors, yes, unfortunately, nobody checks your work. In emergency, there's nurses around. So sometimes they can play devil's advocate, which is great because they see the patient sometimes longer than you do, but you don't have that in family medicine. You do not. So that's a big weakness. And the other thing that I think this case illustrates is, and this is a quote actually from your presentation, the greatest barrier to the proper diagnosis is a prior diagnosis because you said it was gastro. I said it was gastro. It's gastro, right? That's right. And that's very powerful as well. Oh my God. Okay. So what you just did, what you just called there, it's called posterior label bias. Okay. Someone put a label. Okay. It's called posterior label bias. And here's a story of posterior label bias. This one is a clear example. Here's another clear example. If some of you do hospitalist medicine, you will, you will understand this like immediately. So this is a true case. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to use fake names to protect the identity of the victim here. Okay. So it's a 65 year old male who presents to my emergency department complaining of shortness of breath. We do a chest X-ray, we do troponins, we do a whole bunch of tests and the chest X-ray shows pulmonary edema. So I admit this gentleman to general internal medicine. He gets admitted, he gets Lasix, he gets nitro, he gets better discharge diagnosis on the file pulmonary edema, CHF. It's in his chart all over the the hospital HMR, right? Two weeks later, he presents to the same emergency department, right? He's now seen by Dimitri, the second eMERGE doc. Oh, what happened? Well, I was here two weeks ago. You know, Dr. Tran told me I have CHF. Oh, you have CHF. Let me look. So you look into the file. Oh, he was admitted to medicine. He stayed for a week. He had nitro. He had LASIK. Oh, oh yeah. The x-ray shows pulmonary edema. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, sir. Yeah. You got pulmonary edema. Here's some more LASIK. Here's some nitro. Admits the patient to GIM. So one night, the medical student goes to the patient and does actually sits down with the patient and does a story. So he comes out and tells the staff, he says, you know what? This this doesn't sound like pulmonary. It's not at least it's not what I read in textbook. So the the internist says, you know what? You may be right. Let's let's just do a CT scan. Lo and behold, he had bilateral PEs. Right? And why is that? Because the the medical student was curious. <laughs> he wanted to get a good history. 
So where, where did we fall? We fall because we had a label. We had a posterior label bias, right? Oh, it's gastro. Well, the guy said it's gastro. This must be gastro. Oh, it's gastro. I'm going to think it's gastro. Oh, here, here's the heart, lung, abdomen. Oh, it's gastro. Go home, right? So posterior label bias is also very common in our community. And, you know, I, I laugh because I have medical students and it's a good thing because sometimes they will do a full history and discover something like, oh, that's great. Thank you. Thank you for asking those questions, which I should have. Uh, so that's why I laugh a bit because, yeah, medical students, uh, they're, they're really good to have around <laughs> for those reasons, right? For those reasons. For those, exactly. Oh, but also they go get my coffee, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just yeah, kidding. No, I, I get my own coffee. <laughs> Uh, so we talked about anchoring bias, posterior label bias. We talked about knowing your triggers. And these are very common things we deal with in, in medicine. What are some other biases that, that you've seen and that you think we should know about? Yeah, um, I've just, I've talked about one without giving it a label, but I'll give you a label now. Okay. <laughs> so it's called attribution bias. Attribution bias. Yes. So attribution bias is I've attributed, I've attributed, maybe that's the way saying my French just came out there. So if I've attributed to you something that is from my prejudice. Okay. So that's what that means. Here's an example. Uh, you come in with severe abdominal pain. Say, Dr. Tran. I need the morphine. Oh, God, Dimitri. No, I'm not giving you the morphine. You have nothing. Go home. What did my brain say to me? Go ahead. It, again, I'm being very honest here. I'm just yes. going to tell you what my brain said to me. Yeah. That's why it's important to be aware of these things. Yes. Uh, Drug-seeking behavior. Absolutely. Right. Drug-seeking behavior, right? He requested by name, right? Oh, Dr. Tran, I want the Percocet, right? Wait a minute. When was the last time someone requested it by name other than a drug seeker? So what did I do? I just attributed to you a diagnosis that I didn't even bother to check. <laughs> you told me you wanted Percocet. You're a drug seeker. It doesn't matter that you have an appendicitis, <laughs> Right? It doesn't matter that you have a diverticulitis. You requested Percocet by name. You must be a drug seeker. Get out of my office. Mm -hmm. Right? So that's what attribution bias is. So you and I understand this when we do family medicine. There's another, another example of attribution bias, right? So I'm working in the emergency department, right? The EMS brings in Mr. Smith, 55-year-old drunk smells of alcohol with decreased level of consciousness. What did you just, what's your diagnosis, Dimitri? He's alcoholic, right? He's alcoholic. Yeah. He's drunk. He's drunk, right? Put him in the back, you know, where the hallway is next to the bathroom. You know, by the way, I used to train at Maison Neuve Rosemont <laughs> and I used to train at Sacré-Cœur. And um, we had 300% capacity, right? There's 30 beds in the department, there's 100 people, right? So where did we put people? Next to the bathroom, next to the hallway, next to the elevators, right? That, that was Quebec medicine. I, I think it's still Quebec medicine. It's still Quebec medicine. It's still right? Quebec medicine, yeah. So you know what, Mr. Smith, the drunk, put him in the back. He's drunk, right? What did I just do? I just attributed to him a diagnosis, 
based on my own prejudice of Mr. Smith. He presents like a drunk. He's a drunk, though he must be drunk. Therefore, he must be drunk. But he could have fallen in and have a subdural. He could have been intoxicated because he, he tried to commit suicide and took a whole bunch of medication. He could have been decreased level of awareness because he's, yes, fair enough, he drank alcohol, but he's also septic from a pyelonephritis. I don't know that. I didn't examine him. But because of my attribution of his behavior based on my own prejudice, I already gave him a diagnosis. Right. So that's what attribution bias is. Oh, here's one. Very, very simple. You and I understand this all day long. Without me knowing your political strikes, what do you think of Donald Trump? Right. Don't have to answer, Dimitri. Don't have to answer. Donald Trump presents to your family practice tomorrow. Right. What will your brain unconsciously say to yourself? Right. Now, if you like Donald Trump and you like his policies and his behavior, he'll probably walk out alive. If you don't like Donald Trump and you don't like his policies and you don't like his behavior, you're more likely to miss the diagnosis of him having whatever, right? Because already the fact that you don't like Donald Trump and his behavior and his policies already clouded your judgment. And you're not going to do a good history, which is, by the way, very sensitive and very specific, depending on your emotions. And you're not going to pay attention. And you're going to, you everything that he says, oh, you're just a whatever, right? And so you're going discard, to discard and discount the things that he will say, even though it's legitimate, because you have already attributed something to him based on your own prejudice. And so, you know, when, when Donald Trump was president at the time, people were saying, well, if he ever comes into my practice, I will not treat him. Well, you can't. You can't not treat him. If it was an emergency, you will have to treat him. But what happens to your brain when you said that? Emotionally, you're compromised. So if you're emotionally compromised, how good of a medical decision can you make? And so attribution bias is as simple as that and is as dangerous as that. I can use attribution bias all day long. Um, what do you think of people who have tattoos? Uh, what do you think of people who wear a turban? Uh, what do you think of people who have nose piercing? What do you think of people who likes durian? Right? Uh, what, what do you think of, you know, whatever your biases, whatever your prejudices, when you see that, oh, he's got a tattoo on his neck, he, he must not be a good person, right? And so those are the type of things that, we attribute to other people. Now, you and I know that we have to treat everybody the same. We, we have to. This is our job. We are here to care for people. But we are still human. We are still human. If you're the type of person that sees a certain interpretation because someone has tattoo on their body and tattoo bothers you because it, it brings up a certain imagery or it brings up a certain lifestyle, then you are emotionally compromised. And, and to give an example that it's not equivalent to, to anything you said, but, but maybe 
what do you think of somebody who you know is abusing their partner, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's and you have we have those patients and uh, and you're right. We have to be careful because it's there's hate, there's anger in there, and that's the path to misdiagnosis and to being what did you call it? System one. System, or system one. Two. I don't remember that system. I like that mantra, Dimitri. I engage you system two thinking. I like that. Absolutely. So attribution bias is also very common, uh, especially if you're not aware of your prejudices. Right. Mm-hmm. So I have, I have, I have prejudice. I, I, I have to tell you that. Again, like one of them is, I don't like to see people on a Sunday evening at 9 p.m. with chronic back pain. I've said it many times. I don't like that type of presentation. I didn't say I don't like that patient. I said I don't like that type of presentation. Right. But when that patient comes in with that presentation. That's when I need to say to myself, Vu, be careful. This is one of them where you're weak. <laughs> mm-hmm. Be careful. I, listen, I, I again, and I looked through the presentation, which is excellent. And I wanted you to discuss if, if you think it's important what framing bias is, because that's something that I don't understand as well as the other ones. And, and I'm interested to learn. Oh, you know what, Dimitri, you, you read my slide and you understood it. This is, this is so relevant to family medicine, so relevant to family medicine. Okay, so framing bias is the same as setting or environment bias. Okay, here's an example. Uh, Mr. Tran, 35 years old, presents to uh, the emergency department with right-sided chest pain, and uh, it hurts when he press. And it hurts when he takes a deep breath. And by the way, he may have played badminton two days ago. He may have overstretched himself. And you're in family medicine. And you're sitting in four walls in your clinic. There are no people dying around you. There is no people yelling around you. There is no beeping machines. And as a family doctor, what do you commonly see? Well, MSK back pain, MSK chest pain, uh, pneumonia, I'll see uh, things like, you know, shingles, right? That's what I see in family practice, right? So what is the most likely diagnosis of Mr. Tran in that setting? The things that I just mentioned. So now I see that same Mr. Tran in an urgent care setting. Okay, there's many people, people coughing, uh, little kids crying and running around, right? I've got a butt pressure machine now. I've got a no too sad. I've got more things to do. Uh, what is the more likely diagnosis of Mr. Tran in an urgent care setting, right? Or maybe pneumonia, maybe a same MSK chest pain, right? That's what my brain tells me because you know what? I've seen a thousand chest pains in my walk-in clinic and none of them were PEs, right? Now, the same Mr. Tran is now in the emergency department and it's painful when he press and it's painful when he takes a deep breath. What is the number one diagnosis I'm looking for? PE. I'm not looking for wall pain. I'm not looking for pneumonia. I'm looking for PE. Now, this 
setting or environmental or framing bias could be good, but also could be bad. It could be good in the sense that when 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 that same Mr. Tran presents to my emergent, I'm always thinking about uh, about PE. I'm probably going to do too many CT scans in my life, right? But the reverse is that same Mr. Tran presenting to the family practice when the family doctor doesn't see PEs and he maybe sees one or two in the entire lifetime, whereas Dr. Tran in the emergency sees two every week. Well, the family doctor will less likely make a diagnosis of PE, right? And is he more likely to miss a PE? Yes, because of the setting in which you are in. And so recognizing that patients when they come to see the doctor, they don't care whether it's the emergency department. They don't care whether it's walk-in clinic. They don't care whether it's a non-appointment urgent clinic with Dimitri today. All they care is I'm coming to see Dimitri. And it's up to Dimitri to diagnose my PE. Now, what's plaguing Dimitri is the fact that he's in four walls in family medicine. And Dimitri doesn't diagnose two PEs every week. So, so what happens to Dimitri's brain? Dimitri's brain is constantly bathed in this diagnosis of chest wall pain, MSK pain, pneumonia pain, right? Whereas what's plaguing Dr. Tran? Well, Dr. Tran is always thinking about PE, always thinking about dissection, always think. And so Dr. Tran also can fall into the trap of ordering too many CTs. Right. So that's what framing bias is. This, this, this sort of puts me into uh, the next place I want to talk about, which is, which has happened to me. And it's, it's odd. It's when you see the same diagnosis one after the other, right? Oh, why did I have three or four sinusitis today? And then you should really ask yourself, are you sure that the fourth one is a sinusitis? Because what is the statistical probability of that happening? And you mentioned this bias, and it's it's really interesting. I'd like you to talk about it. It's called availability bias. So if you can talk about that, because it's happened to me where I've had three or four cases, sometimes one after the other, where I thought it was the same thing, but it, it can't be, right? It just, it cannot be. Or maybe it is. Exactly. So, so this is a perfect example. What you just said is a perfect example of availability bias. Or uh, there's another twist to this. It's called ambiguity bias as well, okay? So the two go hand in hand, availability bias and ambiguity, and I'll explain. So uh, it's Montreal, uh, it's January, it's freezing cold, it's minus 1,000 degrees Celsius in Montreal, and and you're working in an urgent care, and you see a cold and a cough coming in. Uh, it's influenza, it's a cold. There's another one coming. Ah, it's influenza, it's a cold. And see another one. Ah, it's influenza, it's a cold. Why? Because it's available, right? It's time. It's it's January. It's Montreal. It's cold. You know, I've seen one cold. I've seen two colds. I've seen three colds. By the way, I've seen ten colds today. And you know what? I've done this for 22 years. I know what a cold looks like. It's a cold. But little did you ask that within those 10 colds, maybe one of them was not, (laughs) right? So availability bias is when you see things common over and over and over and over again, your brain gets stuck in that repetition of availability, what is available immediately in front of you, 
right? So that's availability bias. So what's ambiguity bias? Well, ambiguity bias is just a little tweak of that. So you come in with a cold, a runny nose, and all of a sudden you clear your throat. Wait a minute. It's a little bit different than the other ones, right? The other one, the the other guy didn't tell me. He goes, right? Ah, you know what? It's a cold because I, I've seen I've seen like five colds today, right? It must be a cold. Here, here's some Coffex, here's some Benilin, here's some whatever, right? But the guy who goes <clears throat> has a runny nose and a cough, he actually has upper airway syndrome, right? He has a post-nasal drip. Can you cure with Benilin? No. Can you cure with antibiotics? No. So what do you cure it with? Nasal rinse and some nasal steroids. But if you've seen 10 colds and you've given 10 colds, Carfax and Benelin, well, the 11th one who comes in to go <clears throat> is going to be a cold. And why? It's ambiguity bias. It's ambiguity bias is because, oh, it's so ambiguous. What does this <clears throat> mean? Like, what does it mean? Like, I don't know. Like, oh, I'm not sure. So when your brain is not sure, when your brain is saying to you, I don't recognize this pattern. This is a bit off. This is a bit off, but it's not too much off. It's just a bit off. I don't know. Like, so what's common to my brain? Well, you know, I've seen codes a thousand times and today I've seen 10 codes, but I don't know what it is. I'll stick to things that I know. It's a code, right? So that's what ambiguity bias is. When your brain doesn't know, your brain sticks to the things that you know, that you're comfortable with. So, what does it mean? It means that patients who come to see you for something that you know very, very well, you're more to make that diagnosis more commonly. Okay. It also means that if someone comes to see you for something that you don't know and you're not familiar with, you will never make that diagnosis. Right. Okay. So, Here's the question. What is the number one cause? What is the number one cause of chronic cough? Most of us will say COPD asthma. But the number one cause of chronic cough defined as cough beyond three weeks is actually post-nasal drip. Okay? So... Some guy presents to my office to present to your office and he's been coughing for four weeks. It's not getting better. He goes, <clears throat> and every time he, he speaks, he coughs. Oh, wait a minute. You've been coughing for how long? Four weeks. Oh, that's a chronic cough. Do you smoke, Vu? Oh, yes, you smoke. Oh, here's, you have COPD. Here's some Ventolin. Here's some Simbicor. Do you see that every day? Yeah. I see that every single day. And, and is, is, is COPD and asthma the number one cause? No, it's post-nasal drip. This guy has a post-nasal drip. Please give him a nasal spray. And then they don't get better. Where do they go? They go to the next walk-in clinic. The next walk-in clinic. So, oh, you've been coughing for how many weeks? Five weeks. You're not getting better? Oh, but you got some greenish sputum? Oh, you've got bronchitis. Here's a Z-pack. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And then six weeks later, he's not getting better. And someone gives them, oh, well, z is not good. Here's some cefuroxine. Yeah. Right? Right. 
right? So it, it just goes on and on and on because we are not aware of what we're not aware. If we weren't aware that, you know, there's such a thing called post-nasal drip or now the new term is upper airway syndrome. If we're not aware of that, we're going to give antibiotics and Ventolin and, and Simbicort all day long without ever treating the nasal problem. And because why? Because we have seen so many acute bronchitis. We have seen so many bronchitis and asthma that when, when someone presents with something a little bit odd, it doesn't register in our brain or brain doesn't register. And I don't know what to do with that. I'm lost. I don't know what to do with that. So when my brain is lost, it tends to go to comfort food. You know, what is, what is your comfort food? It may be spaghetti. It may be pizza. My comfort food is still durian. Right. So when, when I, when I need comfort food, where do I go? I go to, I go towards durian, right? My brain goes towards COPD. And so that's what our brain does. Our brain goes towards the comfort. And so ambiguity is when it's, when it's ambiguous, I don't know what to do. So I fall towards things that are comfortable for me or things that are familiar. Mm -hmm. So therefore, atypical presentations will always get the wrong diagnosis. Which brings me to, I think, the last one I want to talk about, which I think is a, happens to everyone, not only doctors, but that's confirmation bias. Oh, my God. Right. And I wish this was a visual podcast so I can show that slide that you showed me about confirmation bias, but I can't. That is the one that gets everyone. And that is one that I think seeks well into what you said. You know, you will, you will often avoid the evidence that doesn't confirm your diagnosis and will only use the evidence that confirms it. And this is an automatic thing that your brain does that sometimes you're, yes. you're not aware of, especially when it's ambiguous, especially when you need your comfort food and you need some kind of closure. So maybe we can finish off by talking about confirmation bias. Absolutely. So confirmation bias comes back to, this, to the principle that we had earlier when we talked about us not being our own devil's advocate, right? Mm -hmm. So we do this all the time. So have you ever been in an argument with your wife? Sure. Right? We, all, we, all, we all have. Yeah. We all have been in an argument with our spouses, right? So, you know, the sky is blue. Your wife knows so the sky is red. And you said, no, the sky is blue. No, the sky is red. You're going to try to convince your wife that the sky is blue. And you're going you're gonna to come up with every single argument possible to prove to her that the sky is blue. But the sky is actually red because there's a sunset. <laughs> okay. And then the sky is actually red. But it doesn't matter. You are going to present your point to the point that it becomes ridiculous. And you know it's ridiculous. So, and that is in everyday life. Now, I, I took a very funny story to, to, to depict that. But I'll give you a not so funny story. It's still funny, but it's not in medicine. And I'm going to use another political uh, example. Again, do you like Justin Trudeau? Do you not like Justin Trudeau? I don't need you to answer, Dimitri. I know whether you like them or not based on what you're going to say next. What do you think of his policy on XYZ, right? Dimitri, you know, Justin Trudeau put out this policy. It's the greatest policy ever. Oh, my God. This should have been done so long ago, right? I know what stripes you are. Okay, I know what party you're going to vote for. Okay, now, if I say, by the way, he was blackface twice. 
oh, but this policy is so good. Uh, he's the only prime minister that got twice investigated for ethical reasons. Oh, no, but you know what? This policy is amazing. So what did you just do there? Right. Oh, by the way, this this immigration policy is, is just superb. Oh, you know what? That that tax rule that he did is so good. Right. So even though people present counter fact, counter argument, you only stick to what you believe is right because you've already made the decision that Justin Trudeau is the perfect prime minister. Doesn't matter all the other. now. It doesn't have to be Justin Trudeau. It could be you know. It could be Stephen Harper. Like right, Stephen Harper is the best prime minister we had. All of all these great things. Yeah, but you know what? He brought in this that wasn't really great. You know, his immigration policy wasn't that. No, but you know what? He was so good when he brought in this policy. Remember that one? Remember? You know, yeah. Like so, confirmation bias is about you confirming what you already believe, and it's a belief what you already believe. It's not, it's, it's, it's sometimes fact, but you already believe it. And because you already believe it, it doesn't matter new information. So confirmation bias also comes through that chest pain. So let me give you an example. You know, I, I come in and I've got this chest pain on the right side. It presses when it hurts. Uh, and, uh, and you know what, um, when, when, when I turn this way and I turn that way, it hurts. In your brain, you're already saying to yourself, it's MSK back, it's MSK chest pain. I told you that it takes it hurts when I take a deep breath. Oh, but but wait a minute, didn't you fall like two days ago? Like you were outside gardening, right? Did you not fall? I don't think so. Are you sure you didn't fall? No, I I didn't. No, but you're you're sure, right? You're sure you didn't fall, right? No, I didn't. Uh, well, you sure you didn't you didn't do any sport where you could have pulled your muscle? No, I didn't. But but it does hurt when you press, right? Yeah. So it doesn't matter what new information I gave you, right? You are trying to convince me, <laughs> the patient, that I fell <laughs> because you are already believing that this is MSK chest pain, and because you already believed it. Well, maybe not you, but your brain did. Your brain already believed this is MSK. You are trying to convince me that I fell just so that you are right. So that's what confirmation bias is. And so confirmation bias is also the reverse of playing devil's advocate. You don't play your own devil's advocate, which is which comes back to, I think, one message. Or if it doesn't fit, it doesn't fit. Vu, do not try to fit a circle in a square peg. If it doesn't fit, it doesn't fit. Rethink your diagnosis, look for something else. And it comes back to anchoring bias, right? So my brain anchored to MSK chest pain. It doesn't matter what I told you, you're not going to accept it. But not only that, you're going to find argument to support your first diagnosis. Are you sure you didn't fall, Vu? Like, no, I didn't. You sure you didn't play some sport and injured? No, I didn't. Are you sure you didn't, you know, strain something? No, I didn't. By the way, I, I flew 18 hours from Saudi, right? But you wouldn't have asked that question. You wouldn't mm -hmm. have asked mm -hmm. it because you were already so convinced that this is MSK chest pain. So that's what confirmation bias is. Confirmation bias is sort of the sum of anchoring bias, some of the sum of 
not being your own devil's advocate and some of the sum of uh, labeling bias, right? And so it's, it's not being your own devil's advocate. That's how I see it. So we've talked about a lot of these biases. And again, being aware of them is, is the way forward here because you, if you can name your thought process and say, this is the bias I have, then you can deal with it. But what are some other mitigation strategies that you've, I guess, taught people? Because you do, you do do this. You do peer review. Um, you do teach doctors. What are some other things we can do to prevent these mistakes? Um, just to finish up the podcast, what are some things you suggest? Absolutely. So one thing, and you said it at the beginning, and I cannot stress this too often, be self-aware. That's the first thing. What are the things that trigger me? When I'm in front of that trigger, I am weak. I am weak. You know, you know what? You ever seen those Bruce Lee or Jackie Chan movies when they teach you how to, you know, defeat your opponent? And uh, how, how, what do they tell people how to defeat your opponent? Find a weak spot. You find a weak spot, you will defeat your opponent. If I have my weak spot, I'm going to fall and someone's going to tackle me and I'm going down like a rock. And if I don't know where my weak spot is, how am I going to protect myself? Because this is really about protecting yourself, but it's more about protecting yourself. It's about protecting your patient. Because if you make the wrong diagnosis, there's a delay in diagnosis of the true diagnosis. You're going to give the wrong treatment or potentially miss a diagnosis, or you may actually kill someone. So if you are weak and you don't recognize it, Bad things happen, not just to you, but to your patient. So be self-aware. That's the first thing. The second thing is, as you're, as you're looking at self-awareness, where you have the most weakness, what are the things that you commonly make mistake on, right? And I said it many, many times. Anchoring bias is the number one bias out there. And it affects everyone, even me. I talk about anchoring bias all day long. And I've been speaking about this topic for about five years now, and I suffer from anchoring bias. I do. And when I caught myself doing it, oh my God, Vu, like, what the hell? Why did you do that? That's when I need to step back and say, okay, what went wrong? Why did I anchor here? But that takes a lot of self-reflection, right? And if you're not even aware that you have anchoring bias, hopefully someone will tell you. And hopefully someone tells you before a bad outcome happens. But if, if you're not aware of the term anchoring bias, or you're not aware of what anchoring bias, who would ever tell you? No one, unless you get an audit from the college, right? But, but even auditors from the college won't even talk about attribution bias. They'll just say, why did you give the ZPAC, right? And you shouldn't have given the ZPAC, but they didn't go to the root of the problem. So being self-aware, understanding what these biases are, and the third thing is common things that I've said many times. Medicine is a probability science. Because it's a probability science, you're always going to be wrong and have a potential being wrong because it's pro probability. It's not an exact science. So if you start with the premise of saying that medicine is a probabilistic science, then your chances of being wrong is actually quite high. So if it's quite high, you must at all times, you must at all times question yourself. So sec so third thing, always question yourself. Take the habit of questioning yourself, 
And and the fourth one, if it doesn't fit, it doesn't fit. Don't try to make it fit. Don't try to make it fit. It's it doesn't fit. And if it doesn't fit, rethink your diagnosis. And the last one, the last one that I would say would be very important is engage system two. Engage system two at the point of weakness, right? So when you know you're weak and you're leaving a, a point of, of weakness for the opponent to attack you, that's where you are weak. Then that's when you stop and you say, okay, I need to place my hand this way so that when he strikes me, I can defend. Well, what does that mean? It means that when I am triggered by this guy who comes in on a Sunday, 9 p.m. for chronic back pain, when I'm seeing you know, Donald Trump, when I'm seeing Justin Trudeau, when I'm seeing this guy with a nose piercing, when I'm seeing this guy, this person with, you know, he asked Percocet by name, or, you know, when, I, when I'm in front of a patient, I just had an argument with my colleague in the hallway, <laughs> right? Those are, the, those are the crucial moments of your time. Those are the weak moments. In those moments, engage system two. Engage system two. What what a mantra! I uh, Vu, I really appreciate your time. I think this is. I've learned so much talking to you today, and I'm really hoping that our audience can appreciate that this is very important. And it's probably more so than talking about guidelines. It's about how you approach diagnosis and how you approach medicine. It's digging deep into the theory of it and the art of it. So I really appreciate your time. This was uh, amazing talk, and uh, I wish you all the best. Hopefully, we can talk again in the future. Thank you very much, Dimitri. And uh, I've, I've spoken a lot, but uh, thank you for giving me this opportunity. Thank you.